Good morning. Uh, what a great morning thus far. I'm uh, so excited about the new series as we dive into the parables of Jesus. Once upon a time in 18th century England, there's a group of guys gathered together at a, playing a very competitive game of cribbage. Uh, in this group of guys was a well-known aristocrat, and he's incredibly focused on the game. And he comes to a crisis point. You see, he, he's hungry. And at this point, student ministries can head out, by the way. Thanks, students. Love you guys. Uh, at this point, uh, he gets this crisis point because he's so intense and focused on the game that he, he, he becomes hungry. He doesn't want to leave the game uh, his, and because it's so competitive, but with every passing second, his stomach begins to rumble louder and louder. So he comes to this crisis point. He's in a quandary. So he says to his servant, hey, will you prepare for me? Would you prepare a meal for me? But not just any meal. I want you to prepare something very specific. I want you to get a cold piece of meat, put it in between two pieces of toast. That way I can eat it without having to use utensils or plates or flatware. And if you prepare it that way, uh, my hands also won't get all greasy and I won't in uh, inhibit my playing of the game. Do you think you could do that? The servant thought about it for a moment and he said, sure. He got a cold piece of meat, put it between two pieces of toast, and it satisfied the hunger of this aristocrat. And just like that, the sandwich was invented. It became a real thing that we've had for like over 200 years now. How many of you wanted to know where a sandwich came from, okay? Well, now you know and you'll never forget. John Montague was the first person to invent the sandwich and he was the fourth Earl of Sandwich. That's why we get the name. So to that end, I'm just gonna say, you're welcome. <laughs> You'll win a trivia question someday, and you have me to thank. But that's the power of story. Stories have the power to change how we live and think about everything. Jesus told stories, and some of his most poignant stories were parables. And parables we're going to be studying for the next few weeks. You may have heard that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly truth. And that simple and easily remembered definition is a good start for understanding a word that occurs 45 times in the New Testament. The word itself is a compound of two other Greek words, para, which means beside or alongside of, and the verb balo, to cast or to throw. The word parable almost is a paradox of itself, to cast or to throw away, but yet belong, alongside, beside, next to, away and near, parable. Even in defining the word, there's obscurity, there's mystery. Parables are meant to provoke and to disrupt in all the right kinds of ways. You want to know what the sun is like? Look at your shadow. You can't look at the sun. You have to look at its effects. You feel the warmth on your skin. When you teach in parables, you're not asking people to listen. You're asking people to think, to process, to evaluate. And they're meant to speak to many levels, there isn't just one interpretation of parables. And so throughout the sermon series, we're going to be exploring um, lots of different parables and kind of looking at different ways to see them and see how they can touch and move us. We're going to look at some of the more confusing parables that we read it and we go, cool story, bro. What does it mean? And this morning, we're going to look at two parables that Jesus tells right next to each other, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. So if you have your Bibles, 
Turn to Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. And would you stand as we read out loud the scripture together? It'll be on the screens. We don't normally do this, but it just felt right today. It says this, he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it worked all through the dough. Please be seated. Mustard seed. Kingdom of heaven is like mustard seed, which a man planted in a field, and it's the smallest of seeds, and then it grows up, and then the birds of the air land and perch in its branches. The kingdom of God is like yeast, which a woman hides in and, and then... Uh, works in three measures. Have a great day. Cool story, bro. Uh, The traditional interpretations, you may have heard sermons or commentaries on these passages of scripture, um, but they often explain the parables by saying that the mustard seed is like the kingdom of God. Though it's small and it began in an insignificant manger, in an insignificant Jewish couple, in an insignificant town, to poor peasants, 33 years later, its leader died, yet, like the mustard seed who is small, it will be growing, 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 and so that all the birds of the air um, will perch, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And with the parable of the yeast, the yeast is often said to be the gospel. So when it's planted into the human heart, it eventually works its way like, like inside of dough and creates some nourishment. It's now bread, and it can feed people. Amen. Sermon over. Enjoy your Sunday. There's giving boxes on the way out. Or it means something else. Uh, Perhaps there's more going on here. Parables are really like diamonds. And I really think all of Scripture is like this. A diamond, you can stare at it, and you can know every inch, every magnificent cut, shape, light fractal, everything... But if you just look at it from a different angle, if you just move your perspective a tiny bit, it opens up a whole new world. Stare at it long enough, you think you know it, but you can begin to see it in a whole new way if you change your perspective. So we're all going to become jewelers this morning. We're going to take a look at these gems and just see what the Spirit might have for us. Girolamo Savonarola was a great preacher of the 15th century. There's a statue that exists to this day. And uh, as he began to take over a Paris, the great cathedral of Florence, Italy, which contained this beautiful, magnificent marble statue of the Mother Mary. And when he began to preach at this great cathedral, he noticed an elderly woman who every single morning would go and pray right before Mother Mary's statue. And he remarked to another priest an experienced priest, and he said, how marvelous this woman's faith as she prays every morning before Mother Mary. That's an inspiration. And the older priest said, don't be deceived by what you see. Many years ago, a sculptor needed a model to pose for the statue of the Blessed Mother. And the woman you see going there was that model. She's not praying. She's worshiping who she used to be. 
Things aren't always what they seem. And in the parable of the mustard seed, we are taught many things. In first century Israel, towns were very small, and they were communal. You didn't have your own garden. There was no little garden in your backyard. No, there was a communal garden for the entire village. And so Stephen would plant his eggplants. Brittany would plant her tomatoes. Jesus tells the story of a man planting mustard seed, and the early audience would say, whoa, 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 Jesus, no mustard allowed. See, in Jesus' time, there was a rabbinic commentary called the Kilayim, and it was very well read, and it was written by respected elders in the Jewish community, and, and this is what the Kilayim says in, in chapter 3, verse 2. It is forbidden to sow different species of seeds in one bed. Mustard and small peas are considered seeds and therefore should not be planted in garden beds. This was well known in first century Palestine. Don't plant mustard. So why does Jesus intentionally break tradition? See, this is the irreligious nature of the message of Jesus. And if you want to hear more about that, we did a sermon series in November about it, and you can download it called Losing My Religion. I think Jesus here is critiquing the religious traditions of his day, and he's breaking away from tradition. And mustard in the ancient world had healing properties. This was well known throughout the world. Jesus, in this parable, is planting the seed of healing from the confines of religious living. Once again, pointing us that Jesus replaces religion with himself. This parable also teaches us that for kingdom people, no seed is or should be seen as insignificant. Each contains life within it. No such thing as an insignificant seed. These right here are mustard seeds. They are like so small. I don't know if they're necessarily the smallest of all seeds, but they're certainly very tiny. I think there's probably in here several hundred, maybe more. What appears to be lifeless, small, and insignificant has wonderful potential for life. Have you ever encountered an employee at a grocery store or a restaurant where normally you would pay no mind, you barely even notice them? They're insignificant. But then the waiter or the busser drops a bunch of dishes, drops a tray, and it crashes. And then you see the manager going up to the person, yelling at them. Now that person is no longer insignificant. You're drawn into their story. That person is a son. That person has a family. They matter. Could they lose their job? Are they, what are, are they working their way through school? Is this the only income they have? Now you're drawn into their own story. He was once insignificant. Can I take your tray, miss? And now he's a son. He's a person made in the image of God. They were once invisible. But because of a dropped dish, now they're in color. You realize they have a story. They have hopes and dreams and difficulties. They, like mustard seed, have incredible potential for life. There is no such thing as an insignificant person. We're all significant to Jesus. We're all made in the image of God. Notice something else in the parable. The birds flock to the grown plant. The plant doesn't need to say, hey, come to me. I'm nice. I'm comfortable. I will be a good fit for you. Come. Come on, birds. There's no peacocking here, okay? There's no look at me. And there's no peacocking in the kingdom. Some of you are going, what's peacocking? It's a way of showing off like a peacock does his feathers, okay? 
No, the birds of the air are naturally drawn to it. The mustard seed doesn't have to have a sales pitch and doesn't need to advertise. They're drawn to it naturally. I once heard it said that being a Christian is like being a woman. If you have to convince people you're a woman, there's probably a problem. (laughs) The seed dies in the ground and new life begins, and now it becomes a blessing to other creatures. That's what baptism represents. We die to ourself, and we are given new life in Christ. For the seed to bring about anything good, for this, for this seed, this tiny insignificant thing that's no bigger than a few millimeters, for it to do anything significant, it has to die in the ground and be given new life. That's how it should be with us. You don't have to memorize the Bible. You don't have to have your life all cleaned up to make a difference. The first and most crucial step is being willing to die to yourself. And that makes room for God to move and for the new life in Christ to rise up. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a mustard seed planted in the ground. God revels in the smallness. Smallness, it's always about smallness. This church will not grow because of the big event. We think we're going to have between 600 and 700 people on Easter. That's great. That's wonderful. This church will grow because of small things, because you visited your neighbor who lost everything in a fire, because you sent a forgiving text rather than what you really wanted to send, because you were drawn to someone who was sitting by themselves. God revels in the smallness. You don't have to be a pastor or missionary. Just do small things, mustard seed-sized things with great love and watch the new life begin to bloom in your life. Alexander the Great would meet King Darius of Persia in a great battle that would change the fortunes of the world at the time. Darius had 110,000 soldiers. Alexander had 36,000. A messenger came from King Darius to taunt Alexander the Great, and the messenger shows up and drops off a bag of sesame seeds. Thousands and thousands of them. And the message was clear. He's saying, we are many, we will defeat you. And Alexander seems dejected, but immediately sends a servant, says, hold up. And he sends a bag of mustard seeds. He gives it to the messenger, says, bring this to King Darius. And the message was well understood. We may be smaller than you, but we are stronger and we will overtake you. And that he did. The mustard seed in antiquity was always seen as small, but powerful. The kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's also like something else. Verse 33, he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which a woman took and hid in three measures of dough of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. The word for yeast here is zume, and it refers to sourdough starter. And this is not the kind that you put like in a refrigerator, uh, but rather, it's, uh, it br- it's an enzyme that breaks down other enzymes in starch and flour, and it converts it to glucose. The starter serves as a leavening agent and is subsequently mixed with more dough. Anyone who's ever made uh, this sourdough starter can watch, literally watch the decomposition process happen. 
Recipes instruct bakers to place the starter in a bowl, cover the bowl with a, like a wet dishcloth, and let the mixture sit in warm, breezeless place like a dark oven. As the mixture sits, the fermentation process begins to take place. And the starter is ready, and all recipe books say this, when you smell a pleasant sour smell, and the mixture has bubbles. I'm not a cook. I'm a domestic disaster. <laughs> but the same way that you would make uh, bread in the ancient world, we still make today. The idea of a sour smell combined with a bubbly mixture that, cre that is created during the process of fermentation, it's enzyme decay. It doesn't, it doesn't strike me as something delicious, right? To the contrary, there's an ick factor, right? gross. The process with its possible negative connotations was well known throughout antiquity. One ancient writer says that yeast is the product of corruption and that the processes of leavening seems to be one of putrefaction. There are things in life that stink. Zume. It's breaking down of enzymes and it smells. Yet the finished product it smells amazing. Is there any better smell than fresh baked bread? It's delicious. It's an incredible scent. So what starts off as something of an ick becomes an aroma of leaven from heaven. Now, I'm like borderline germaphobe, like with stuff on my hands. So I have to like put hand sanitizer on my hands right now. Otherwise, I'm going to freak out. Um, not quite, but ick. I don't want a sour, unpleasant smell on my hands. Uh, isn't that the story of Jesus? If ever there was an ick moment in the history of humanity, it was the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet now we sing of the beauty and love of God because of the cross. What started as repugnant has now become a beautiful aroma. What was once seen as bad can eventually become good. We call it a Friday for a reason. If ever there was a bad Friday, it was the day when we nailed the Son of God to a cross. But yet we call it good. What was once ick, what was once repugnant, can become beautiful. Let's turn the diamond again. The early followers of Jesus would have had an internal bell go off when they read the phrase, three measures of flour. Whoa, 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 three measures of flour? That's Abraham. It goes back all the way to Genesis. Abraham sitting at the entrance of his tent, and three visitors arrive. In Jewish thought, it's uh, uh, a few angels. Uh, in Christian thought, it's the, it's the Trinity. Abraham, displaying the hospitality to which he will become famous, runs into the tent, prostrates himself before the strangers and invites them to lunch. Genesis 18, 6. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour. Knead it and make bread cakes. Three measures in the first century is not synonymous with three cups, okay? Just a little bit of bread, just enough for these uh, three to five people, no? Three measures of flour, somewhere between 40 and 60 pounds. It would feed well over 100 people. The dough would be far too much for any one person to create, 
let alone consume. The image here is one of hyperbole or extravagance. Abraham sees these three strangers and says, honey, honey, quick, make some bread, enough for a hundred people. If, if I said that to my wife, she said, you're crazy. The kingdom of God is extravagant and generous. This is extravagant hospitality shown by Sarah and Abraham. A welcome of strangers who turn out to be God. Could Jesus be hinting at this? Should we too show the same extravagance with our interactions with guests and strangers? Doesn't Jesus teach us in the gospel that whenever we feed the hungry, that whenever we visit the prisoner, that whenever we clothe the naked, we are doing that unto God? Who are strangers and guests? Anyone and everyone. Anyone and everyone. The dude behind you at Starbucks. Can we show extravagance, love, generosity? Just this last week, I was driving home from work, and I text Sarah before I started driving. Uh, I said, hey, babe, I'm going to go through Starbucks. Do you want anything? And she texts me her order. So I get in line at the drive-thru at Starbucks, and uh, I see the menu, and it's like all in like HD, and I'm like, those pastries look really good. So I bought multiple cake pops. I'm ashamed, okay? <laughs> multiple cake pops, all kinds of different pastries. I, I, I've got a sweet tooth, okay? Don't judge. But it, it's taking a long time. I, I make the order, and it's taking forever to get to the, the to place to pay. And as soon as I get there, the guy says, pay it forward. Uh, and I go, huh? Pull forward, I'm already here. Like, I didn't understand what he said. And he said, no, no, pay it forward. Would you like to pay for the person behind you because the person in front of you paid for your order? And I go, well, of course. Of course, someone just covered my $14 pastry order. So the guy says, uh, the guy behind you ordered a, a black cup of coffee. It'll be $1.62. And I was like, I'm getting a sweet deal here. Uh, and so I felt bad because my order was so big. And I was, of course, I was going to buy the guy behind me. And so I start thinking, maybe I'll buy for the next two people. But then I realized that's going to throw off the whole system. It's pay it forward, not pay it forward, forward. And so I give him a buck 62 and I go to town on those pastries on the way home. <laughs> Extravagance. Blessing. These parables are told together for a reason. Seed, yeast, what we see now is potential, but potential needs to be actualized. Nothing will happen with this dough if I let it sit. Someone has to be intentional, put it in an oven, and watch it rise and feed people. This seed will just stay in this little Dixie cup unless it is planted and nurtured with water and sun. The yeast has to be placed into the dough. The seed has to be planted. Even small actions or hidden actions have the potential to produce great things. I want to invite Stephen and the worship band to come up. When Jesus describes the kingdom of God in this passage of scripture, which we see in Mark and which we also see in the book of Luke, he doesn't speak of the kingdom of God with streets of gold or pearly gates. He says the kingdom of God is like a communal garden planted in the village. The yeast parable is set at the village oven. 
The kingdom of heaven is found in what we might call today our own backyard. It's not about the pearly gates. It's about your living room. It's about your office. It's about your school. Our own backyard, in the generosity of nature, and in the daily working of men and women. Perhaps the parable tells us that despite all of our golden images of splendor and streets and harps and halos and angels on clouds, the kingdom of God is present at a communal oven in a Galilean village, in a garden where everyone has enough to eat. It's always about the concrete, the real, the right in front of you. God, I pray in Jesus' name that for us, that we would bring heaven to earth in how we live, in how we treat each other, and how we love. God, I pray that you would help us to do small things with great love. I pray that it wouldn't be about religion, that it would be about you. I pray that you would permeate our hearts and help us to be a blessing. God, that it's not about just you blessing us, which you do, but you bless us so that we can bless others. So God, help us to do that. Help us to do that with our kids. Help us to do that with our spouses. Help us to do that with our bosses. Help us to do that with our enemies. God, we thank you that you revel in the smallness. Father God, we pray that you would just help us this week to be intentional about the small things that we would not see anybody as insignificant, but all with potential of life, all as children of the divine, made in your image. Let us be people who follow you, that are conformed to the likeness of Christ, to be a blessing to the world. We thank you for your calling on our lives, your calling on our church. Let us lean into that this week in a new way, a fresh way, and let it be an aroma of heaven in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand together as we close with this song?